The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. It's Matt Slick Live. Matt is the founder and president of the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, found online at CARM.org. When you have questions about Bible doctrines, turn to Matt Slick Live for answers. Taking your calls and responding to your questions at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. I'm doing a doctorate program. Um, I only do a half hour show on Mondays, but today's a full hour because we're having a break. So if you want to call me, I've got a whole hour to talk about all kinds of stuff. All you got to do is dial 877-207-2276. I want to hear from you. Give me a call. And if you are interested, if you want to um, email me, you can do that too. All you got to do is... Uh, and there we go. There we go. All I can do is just, uh, you know, go to your email and type in um, info at karm.org. Info at karm.org. And um, we can get right to it. Just put in, in the subject matter. Put something like, uh, let's see, radio question or radio comment. And I can get to it. All right. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So whew, I had a good weekend and uh, busy. Uh, I'm always busy. I've always got things to do. Working on an article today, uh, how is Jesus going to return? Because that was an issue. I was dealing with some people in the preterism stuff last week. And the one guy who was saying that uh, Jesus returned in 70 AD, it just, man, it doesn't make sense. So there's that issue. And working on others as well. We'll do some videos tonight before we release a bunch. So there you go. All right. All right. Since nobody is calling me right now, but if you want to, 877-207-2276. So let's get some questions here. Let's see. What's your take on the three men who appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18? So uh, let me go there. I'm familiar with it. It's where the Lord appeared to Abram. In Genesis 18, it's Abraham. In Genesis 17, it's Abram. So he got his name changed uh, at that point. So it says the Lord appeared to him, and the word Lord there is Yahweh, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door at the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. Uh, Now, why three? Uh, That's really interesting. At any rate, he uh, ran to the tent door and uh, bowed himself to the earth, saying, My Lord, uh, if you found uh, favor in your sight, please let us pass your servant by. Now, I've actually been to that place. Uh, It's it's, uh, like a... There's a bunch of buildings around it, and uh, in Israel, a bunch of buildings, and um, there's a school next to it. And this is a true story. Nothing big happened, but there's a school with a lot of Muslims uh, in it. And so when we went there, uh, thirty of us were walking around the the area where the ruins are from from memory, where Abraham was, you know, so long ago. So myself and uh, another friend of mine, Dave, and another guy, we kind of, you know, we've done martial arts, we've done stuff, and, and uh, you know, security-minded. And so, you know, not a big deal. We just kind of paid attention to the kids in the yard. And they came over to the fence. And we've been told that sometimes they'll throw rocks at the, the tourists because whatever. So I walked over and just said, hey, how are you doing? And uh, uh, do you speak English? And uh, some spoke English. 
So we, we, they ended up coming through the fence, and we ended up talking to them and uh, laughing and stuff like that. So that turned out nicely. So uh, there you go. It was no big deal. But we've been to that place. It was interesting. It's not that big. It's like 150 feet by 150 feet, you know, 200 feet by 200 feet area next to a street. So who was it who appeared? Well, you know, uh, it says, the, the you know, Yahweh appeared to him. Then there were three men. So I don't know how to answer that. I don't know what the actual thing is that really went on. But it does say that it appeared. Now, this is one chapter earlier, Genesis 17, 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, that's Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I'll establish my covenant with you. So, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, as for my covenant with you, you know, etc. Talking about it. So, uh, it, what it says is, Yahweh appeared to Abram, and uh, Abram bowed down, and he says he was. And he said, "I'm God Almighty." Now, could you imagine something like that? I mean, you know, you're you're out there, someplace, and uh, lo and behold, somebody comes up because it had to be a theophany, pre-incarnate Christ, most probably, and uh, just walks up and says, "I'm God Almighty." I mean, what do you do? You know, yeah, sure you are. You know, lightning bolt. I, I don't know. You know, how did he know? So probably a lot more going on than the text reveals. I think what they did was just uh, Moses just got the you know Lord appeared to him. Okay, and that was it uh, because that was the information. So uh, what I like is that three men appeared to him in Genesis eighteen one. But I also think is interesting is in Genesis one twenty six. Notice the three plurals. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And there's a th more, there's the three plurals again. So I can't help but wonder if something's going on, the hint of the Trinity there in the Old Testament. Uh, and so that's what I, I see. So at the very least, I would say that uh, the three men that appeared were um, at the very least uh, angels. And at the very most, uh, one of them may have been uh, the pre-incarnate Christ who appeared and says, I'm God Almighty, which would make sense. So that's my take on that. We have three open lines if you want to give me a call, 877-2072276. And uh, let's go to Tim from Memphis. Tim, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, Matt. Thanks for taking my call. I just sure. had uh, one question about Jonathan Kahn, and then my larger question for you is just to hear what you have to say about what's going on day by day right now in his, Israel. Well, I don't know who Jonathan Kahn is, but um, uh, personally, I'm glad that Israel is uh, cleaning house. Um, I, I don't no, you, like the... What? Wait a minute, you say you don't know who Jonathan Kahn is? Correct. The Har the Harbinger, all these books on prophecy? I don't don't know who he is. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. He's just pretty famous. I thought I thought for sure you'd be aware of him. But anyway, talk about Israel. And I'm gonna hang up. I'd rather hear you talk. Okay, I don't have any more questions. Okay. All right. Okay, thanks, Matt. Appreciate sure. That. Sure. Well, um, so uh yeah i'm uh, personally 
I'm glad that Israel is going into uh, the Gaza Strip and getting rid of Hamas. Hamas is a dangerous, uh, ungodly, horrible group of Muslims who want to kill, destroy, and, uh, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of morons who are brainwashed by leftist media and leftist indoctrination camps called schools that think that Israel is the aggressor. Uh, no, it's, it's Hamas, it's the Muslims who in the Quran, it specifically teaches to destroy uh, all those who don't submit to Islam. That's what it says. And so they're just carrying out what their false prophet Muhammad said. And they, uh, they attack, uh, you can go to Surah 9.5, Surah 9.29, you can go to uh, where it says there to fight those uh, unbelievers. And um, Surah 551, it says don't take Jews and Christians as your friends. Uh, you know. So it, it, Islam is against Israel, and they want to destroy Israel. And so when I was in Israel five, seven years ago, we were in the northern part of Israel, and a rocket flew over our head. We didn't even know it, but uh, we just got a report later that a rocket just went into Israel, and they uh, were, you know, it, it exploded. It, that particular rocket didn't do any damage. So this is what they'll do: is they will, um, they, uh, they're they're destructive. And uh, another thing that that happens uh, when I've been into two areas of Muslim-controlled areas in um, in. In Israel, is that as soon as you cross over into their territory, it becomes filthy, trash everywhere, filthy, unkept, broken uh, buildings, uh, cement that's cracked, un unrepaired roads that are bad, and this is how it is. Uh, they don't take care of what they've got, and they um, they want to destroy Israel. So anyway, uh, I'm glad that Israel's cleaning their clocks right now, personally, get rid of Hamas. And then, you know, and that's it. Unfortunately, the civilians are getting caught in, in between. And what Hamas does is, uh, see, put it this way. Israelis and Christians in America, all right, we would not take our infantry and hide them in a hospital or in an orphanage and say, here, come get us. We don't do that kind of a thing. But Muslims do. And so when they get attacked and anybody on the sideline gets, gets injured, they say, see how bad you are for attacking the civilians? They use lies. And this is what uh, the, uh, the media is purporting. It, uh, they just hate Israel. It's really, you know, this causes me to think about other things. Uh, in my opinion, I think our country's lost. I'm, I, I, do, I don't have much hope for our country. And the reason is it because our media is taken over by the left, the the, uh, the movies, uh, TV taken over by the left, the schools have been taken over by the left, and the churches are divided. The churches aren't doing anything. The churches aren't standing up for righteousness' sake. And uh, we'll talk about something else that that reminds me. And so uh, the the salt has lost its saltiness here, and uh, God's taking His blessing off of this country. We're being invaded from the south, etc. So you know that a lot of uh, people who hate America have used this opportunity uh, by the Biden crime family to be able to uh, just enter our country and they're going to go into sleeper cells and then it'll strike. That's what I believe will happen. That's me. Um, that's my opinion. And if you don't agree, well, okay. That's what I think is going to happen. So uh, that reminds me, you know, I don't know why it does, but it kind of does. Uh, last night or yesterday I was on, I just checked my Facebook every now and then I checked. 
and I stumbled on a thread of Christians who uh, were insulting education. One guy started off a post or a comment in a post. He said, if I had my way, and I was on a search committee for a pastor, I would take all of the resumes that have seminary degrees and I would just put them in the trash automatically. And people, instead of saying, well, why would you do that? You know, what's the reasons? They were starting to say the same thing. That's right, because they're just uh, egocentric uh, people who want degrees to boast. And I was like, are you kidding me? What is wrong with the Christians today that they think like that? And it wasn't just one person or two. There's a whole bunch. And one of them was semi-well-known. I won't mention his name. And I jumped in. And I said, that's a wrong attitude to have. And I I wrote some stuff, uh, and uh, I got on them. I said, yeah, of course, some seminaries are bad. But look at the state of the Christian church today. I mean, people don't even know if Jesus is God in flesh. They can't even define what the Trinity is. They don't even know uh, what logic is and, and the issues and how to defend the Christian faith. And, and what they're taught is mamby-pamby theology from the pulpits and stories that go on for five to ten minutes. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was I went to a church, and I won't say which one, and I... I Okay, great. A pastor there preaching, and I'm going to check this out. And uh, I think it was seven minutes before he got to the actual scripture. Seven minutes of intro, warm-up stories and a couple of jokes kind of a thing. And I was just, this is ridiculous. And people love it because they've been fed candy. They crave candy instead of meat. Anyway, hey, we'll be right back. Give me a call, 877-207. Two two seven six. Be right back. It's Matt Slick live, taking your calls at eight seven seven two zero seven two two seven six. Here's Matt Slick. Everybody, welcome back to the show. If you want to give me a call, all you're going to do is dial eight seven seven two zero seven two two seven six. I want to hear from you. Give me a call. And uh, so I was talking about the issue of education and how so many uh, Christians now uh, don't like education. And uh, I think they're being fed, my opinion, this is my opinion, okay, this is my opinion. I think they're being fed a lot of mamby-pamby stuff and not uh, really getting into weaving into the theological perspective of God's uh, very holy and deep word. When I preach and I teach, I usually give some theology just for a minute or two to tie things in. So they understand uh, how the broader picture of stuff works in Scripture. And I find uh, repeatedly that people are very interested in that, and they say they don't hear that kind of stuff from the pulpit, generally speaking, that uh, what the Trinity is and why it's important. So if I'm speaking on, say, something that, that talks about, you know, there's only one God, I'll say, hey, and by the way, you know, I'll do two minutes. God is is uh, a trinity of three distinct simultaneous co-eternal persons and i'll go to maybe uh, go to romans 120 and talk about how the invisible attributes of god are made known in creation and i might talk about god being trinitarian and and uh, space and uh, matter and time are actually of three aspects each and show how this works and then say this is why it works and then i'll say in fact look at this and i'll say i, I could connect all the dots but i won't do it right now but think about this marriage is a Trinitarian covenant. It's between the couple, and that's one covenant. It's between the couple and God, that's two covenants. It's between the couple and uh, the other people, 
That's three covenants right there. The Trinitarian essence of God is all around us. We need to understand it. And there you go. And then go back into the sermon. You know, I do stuff like that. And I, people need to have that kind of a thing. And, and I absolutely never hear anything like that at all in any of the preaching I've ever heard. I don't hear stuff about the hypostatic union and the two natures of Christ, right? Or the communication of the properties or why he had to be God and man in order to atone for our sins. Or why justification must be and can only be by faith alone in Christ alone and by grace alone. And go through the scriptures that talk about it. These are, there's, there's only a handful of the essentials, but I'm so ingrained to know them that when I preach about things like this, I teach people the basics of the Christian faith that need to be uh, interjected into the text, not into the text, into the sermon. But what I find that people are doing more and more, uh, pastors, I think is, it's a shame. I do, it's my opinion. I think it's a shame. Is, uh, you know, five minutes of, of illustration of a sermon and a story to begin something with. Warm the crowd up. Warm them up. And uh, make them so that they're laughing and having a good, comfortable time. And uh, I think that is the wrong approach. And I think that pastors and teachers need to preach historical, redemptive, theological uh, sermons. What that means is that everything ultimately points to the cross. And that they need to also abandon um, uh, humanistic philosophy, man-centeredness, you know, I give you permission, God, you know, the, the stupidity of that blasphemous statement. Uh, you know, I give you permission to work in my life. I give you permission to come in my heart. The arrogance and foolishness of such statements, which are taught uh, in pulpits across America and in and songs. Uh, a good theologically trained individual would never say anything like that. But yet, uh, we have such heresies uh, growing to the Christian church. No wonder the Christian church is so ineffective, you know, because they don't see the the theology. Let me tell you what theology is. Here's some theology. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord of your life. You need to trust in Christ by faith. You need to confess your sins before God. You need to realize that there's only one God in all existence, in all place, in all time. You need to understand that Jesus died on the cross and three days later rose from the dead in the same body he died in, though it was a glorified body. You need to know that he ascended into heaven physically and will physically return, and that this is prophesied in Acts 1, 9-11. These are the basics. And do you hear these kinds of things taught from pulpits? Do you hear them taught? Do you hear pastors teach the basics of the faith sprinkled here and there through various sermons? Or let me ask you, do you get, uh, do you get stories, big illustrations, as if that is what makes the Word of God powerful? That's a problem. Isaiah 55 11 says the word of God will not come back empty without accomplishing what he desires it to do. It's one of the things about speaking and public speaking. And by the way, thanks, Mr. Kidd, for the $12 rant. I appreciate it, buddy. Mr. Kidd's great. I believe that the power of God, the very nature of the preaching of the word of God is powerful. And that the more we are in the scriptures, the more we're reading from the scriptures, the more we're looking at the scriptures, the better. That's so one of the things I like about Calvary Chapel. And not all of them do the same thing. 
just just to tell you, Calvary Chapel's theology is not very deep. It's sufficient. And people can certainly grow in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And and of all the churches I've ever attended, that's the one I've attended most. Okay? I'm not knocking them. And I don't agree with their pre-trib rapture stance. I don't agree with that at all. And, uh, you know, but that's okay. That's not what I divide over. But I, I, I'll tell you, you know, I've heard different pastors speak over the years. And I sat under Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. Did that for several years in Southern California. and heard him preach many, many times. And he was right to the scriptures, right to the word. And I think that's part of the success of the Calvary Chapel movement is the word. I want to know if uh, part of that success is now just momentum of the style that they have and the stuff. I long, personally, I long for the power of God's word to be preached. I long for the exhortation of God's word to come forth. And that's something I don't really hear from God's word anymore. Now, let me tell you what it means, uh, exhortation. Because it says here in Romans 12, 8, um, the one who serves in his serving and teaching in his teaching, he exhorts in his exhortation. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren. Now he's going to tell us what an exhortation is. Okay. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul is, was not crucified for you, was he? Or you baptized in the name of Paul? Notice what he's doing. He's doing an exhortation. To exhort means to call people on the carpet, to give them admonition, to give them warning, to speak strongly. Do you get that from your church? Do you get that kind of thing from the pulpit of the church that you attend? Do you get exhortation? I'm not saying all the time. You know, not you know. Sometimes we don't need that at all, and sometimes the scriptures don't, aren't doing that at all. That's fine, but. When you go through the scriptures, there's exhortation. It should be part of the sermons, occasionally. And as it wish it happened. But is it? I don't think so. I've not heard it. And I, I'm saddened by the, in my, my opinion is, the weakness of the preaching of God's word that is rampant in America. Though I do know some pastors that do preach with exhortation, but not enough. Hey, folks, we'll be right back after these messages. Give me a call. Wide open lines. I'm waiting for you. Be right back. It's Matt Slick Live. Taking your calls at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. If you want to give me a call, all you have to do is dial 877-207-2276. I want to hear from you. Give me a call, okay? All right, all right. Let's get back to some more emails. All right. Yeah, I like doing emails every now and then. It's nice. All right, so we got that. Uh, all right, all right. So uh, I hope you guys don't get too upset when I talk about preaching and teaching. Maybe you go to a church and you go, no, it's not like that at my church. Praise God. I'm not saying all of them are bad. You know, and all of them like that. I'm just saying what I've seen. 
course, I get bored in church pretty easily. Yeah, I do. My wife, she says she gets stuff out of sermons. I'm like, come on, get to some day. You know, so we got to take it from the source here. All right. Uh, let's see. How about this one? Uh, okay. Hi, madam. Learning a lot through the live show. Good. I've trusted your website for over year, for years, uh, but didn't discover the live broadcast until recently. Two questions, if you forget the time and the in reformed thinking, is it possible for one to become a genuine born-again, regenerated Christian if that one is somehow not predestined for salvation? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not possible to become born again without being predestined to salvation in reformed theology because that's how you get uh, saved, is by, by predestining you. That's the that election of predestination. God chooses and then God predestines. Okay, that's out of Ephesians 1.4. That's what it says, you know. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us to adoption. So election and predestination are tied together in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. What if one... What if one... What? Bez? Begs? What? With all of their... Oh, begs. Uh, that's a wrong spelling. With all of their being, is it possible that it would not be God's will? People are not going to beg for salvation unless God is working on them. Because the Bible says you cannot come to me unless it's granted to you from the Father. John 6, 65. And he draws you, John 6, 44. The natural man cannot receive the things of God. First uh, Corinthians 2, 14. So whenever anybody is being, has this inclination, this desire to, to pursue God, it's because God is working in their hearts. And uh, they have the ability to resist. They absolutely do. And we don't know, understand how God works, if he uh, resi uh, you know, overcomes resistance or what, or changes. We, we don't, I'm not getting into possibilities here. But uh, someone would not beg to be saved, and then they couldn't be saved because God didn't predestine them. It wouldn't work like that. It does not work like that. Anyone who wants to be saved, is, they're having a good thought. And these good things come from God. It's God working, okay? A lot of people think that Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism, is this robotic kind of mechanistic kind of a thing. It's not it. God woos. God draws. God, God uh, desires that people come to know him. And uh, he, he works in them. We don't know all the particulars, but uh, he does do that. Or by the fact, he goes on the email, or by the fact that one earnestly begs for uh, salvation despite the ungodliness of one's character and behavior, that is, this plea is in fact evidence of God choosing or Yeah, it is. It's evidence of God's work. Absolutely. How, I mean, how many of you, if you think about it out there, uh, you know, are Christians now, and before you became a Christian, you felt that tug, that subtle movement and the speech into your heart, conviction, whatever you call it, of the spirit working on you or you just feel something you just know you get this drawing uh that kind of a thing a lot of people have had that that's god working he doesn't just come along and uh, just elbow you upside the head and now you're saved and a lot of people say think that's what reformed theology teaches that's not what reformed theology teaches that's not it at all uh we do teach that uh, god uh desires uh, people to be saved and that he works in people's lives and that we need to trust in him and now how that works there's some particulars and some nuances but the bible does say you cannot come to him unless it's granted to you from the father so this person goes on um 
What is your analysis or commentary about a born-again, regenerated Christian who lives a lifelong cycle of earnestly following the Lord and then falling into serious immorality, sin over a lengthy period, and then uh, seriously repenting and trying to change with zealous seeking of God, serving God, and then again falling <laughs> into a protracted period of immorality, and then again entering into a serious season of desperate repentance, seeking God's salvation from actual sin, etc. What would you counsel such a person? who is a Christian, and this is what the statement is, he is a Christian. I would say that such a person uh, who is a Christian um, is a Christian who's struggling. And we all do this to different degrees. There are some who go into some pretty bad sin and some who don't. And um, uh, we struggle, okay? So we all have these periods of time. So we could say the period of time is a few minutes to a few hours to a few days to a few weeks to a few months. And would someone say, well, if it's a few months, it means you're not saved. Well, how do you know? Why, why not a few minutes? Where's the dividing line that says a few minutes of struggle is okay and a few months of struggle is not, you know, as far as being a Christian goes. And I'm not saying it's okay to struggle. We don't take care of our sins we, and it's okay not to repent. No, I'm not saying that at all. But, uh, we all have our struggles. And so what I'd like to see in someone who struggles is, I don't like to see them sin. You know, I don't want to see them struggle in their sin. That's not what I want. But when I talk to people who are struggling and they don't like what they see, they don't like what they are, they don't like how they've been, and they're struggling and they're failing, well, that to me is a sign of life in them. It's telling me that they are... Um, they're saved and they're struggling. They are working uh, to to sanctify themselves. And sometimes people just get tired, and they have a bad idea of what uh, God wants of them, and they think that uh, God's going to be un unhappy with them and they're going to go to hell because they sinned for a little bit. No, it's not the case. God doesn't abandon us. He doesn't doesn't uh, leave us on the on the curb. He doesn't kick us out. Okay. And that's another something. That's another something. I gotta do a video. I keep forgetting about this. I gotta do a video on this. But I I've talked to some atheists, and there's one atheist in particular I spoke with, and we talked over the phone about this issue. And I've heard, I'm gonna say this. I've heard other atheists say this too. Just a couple, three who've talk to me like a normal be a person instead of a combat someone to combat because I'm a Christian and debate but just conversations you know have um, said that a lot of times in Christian homes uh, one of their children might become homosexual and the parents will kick them out just because of that and I say really and I've had two of them tell me two atheists tell me that the uh, they have no place to go. And so they turn to the atheists, and the atheists will take them into their homes and give them shelter and food and love. And so they become atheists. They reject God. And parents will do this because they're Christians. And they'll... There does come a time with tough love. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you have a son or a daughter who just comes to you and says, look, I'm struggling with homosexuality or whatever it is, you don't kick them out. You say, really? Well, let's talk. What's going on? 
and well, I've been doing this for months now, a couple of years. I've been hiding it, and and you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, what do you do? Kick them out? No. You say, well, you know, I love you, and you know, I believe it's sin, and we that cannot be allowed in the house. But you're welcome to stay here. You're welcome to stay here, and and um, you know, until you get your feet. But I'm not going to approve of your actions. But I want you to know I love you. This kind of a thing is what Christians need to be doing. And I've heard so many accounts from atheists of the mom and dad find out a, a son or a daughter's, uh, you know, homosexual, lesbian, and they're out within 24 hours. They kick them out, and it's horrible. Where's the love of Christ? Where's the love of the Lord Jesus? Now, if they are, the children are being deceptive repeatedly and doing against your wishes repeatedly say they're doing bad things uh, doing drugs in the house stuff like that and they won't repent then it gets to the point where you give them a warning I'm, I'm sorry but you can't do this you're gonna have to be out of the house you know you've got two weeks to get your stuff together and then you're, you're you got to be gone that's okay but this automatic get rid of them thing it, it's a problem it's a problem this is uh, this issue here is uh, uh, you know um, started by the, the email this guy gives you know someone struggling with their sin. What do you do with that? Uh, you know, on the radio I'm very very to the point, and you know I tell people how it is. But you know what? They peep you know in real life you know and what to what. I'm very patient, loving, and and. Uh, you know, I've had homosexuals here in the house, trans here in the house, and uh, treated them all fairly. And and that's just the way it is. I love them, but I don't approve of their sin, and they know that. But they know, and they know that's not permitted here. But they're welcome to be here. I'm going to help them out, show them the love of Christ. All right, hey, look, there's a break. Last segment coming up. I want you to give me a call, 877-207-2276. We'll be right back. It's Matt Slick Live, taking your calls at 877-207-2276. Here's Matt Slick. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. If you want to give me a call, all you got to do is dial 877-207-2276. Let's get to Catherine from Salt Lake City. Catherine, welcome. You're on the air. Thank you. I just have a question about Psalm 91. It just says, like in verse 3, God will keep us from deadly pestilence. Well, I know Christians who died from COVID, and uh, that, uh, you know, a thousand may fall at your side, but it won't approach you. You know, we know Christians who've been in accidents and maimed. So I just uh, asked the Lord Jesus, what can I claim here? Is it ultimately that we will... Uh, be saved and protected. Uh, so I don't find Psalm 91 comforting just because I don't know what I can claim here. Claim. That's interesting. Um, have you listened to Kenneth Copeland and uh, Joyce Meyer by any chance? You know, I don't. 
I understand what they're teaching. This is okay. just my reading in in okay. my Bible study. We're doing Science um, 91 now, and nobody's been able to answer this question okay. for me. All right. So it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Now, that's very important. In God whom I trust. You're trusting the Lord. There's a... Um, a anyway, get to this. Uh, where is it? Though he slay me. Where is that verse? I'm going to find that verse. There's a verse that says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Let me find it. Is Don't that in Job? Uh, I don't know. Yet I will trust in him. Let's see. Typing it in, and it's, oh, you're good. Job 13, 15. Okay, very good. So uh, so there's we have to understand the theological perspective here. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. That's what Job thirteen fifteen. Good call. So, when we look at Scripture, we have to understand that it's not a formula, a bag of formula things and fortune cookie things we can live our lives by in every single area. So when it says, uh, in my God whom I trust, we know that God allows uh, certain things to come to us. We know that right. he will... It is in, it's in his will to allow us to physically die. And that death yeah. can be by varying things. You know, car accident, deformity, sickness, old age, whatever it might be. So that's, that's an overall thing. So we look at these kinds of statements and, and psalms as praise through song and poetry. Where it is, he okay. who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. What, what do you mean? So... So God delivers you from a snare of a trapper? But it, these are meant for small animals. So not people. So he's being poetic. And from the deadly pestilence. Now he knows, the psalmist knows, because the people in Israel had many pestilences that came through and killed them. And he knows that. And he'll cover you with his pinions, right? His feathers. And under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So what he's saying is, when God delivers, he delivers you from these things. And that we should praise him accordingly as we trust in him. Now what happens if you pray for traveling mercies on a trip from here to the neighboring state, and then you get in a bad car accident? Does that mean that your prayers didn't work? Well, it's not an issue of working as though it's a formula that you claim before God and say, this is now mine, therefore I'm safe. Oh, the prayer didn't work, I got in an accident. It's not our attitude. It always must be, Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from uh, from evil, from accidents, from stuff. But nevertheless, Lord, if you allow it, may it only be a little fender bender or whatever. And what we're doing is, is we're trusting him through it. And like when I travel and I fly on a, a plane, I go, I go someplace to come back. I thank the Lord for, for safe delivery. Thank you for, for that. Yeah. And, and so this is what's going on. That's what's what's meant. It's not a formula that we need to understand that, uh, you know, like COVID. I had COVID for one day. My wife had it for 10 days. And uh, with me, it was like a, just a head cold, and I was done. And she had it for 10 days. took her a while to recover. So different people, different stuff. So how would she, uh, you know, and, and I look at that? Well, God delivered me in one day, delivered her in 10. 
You see? And when we trust, whether it's one day, whether it's death, but whatever the bottom line is, you know, like the first part said, we trust him, uh, regardless of what he allows, and we trust through it. That's right. We trust God through it. Okay. And just writing it down. This, This is very, very helpful. Good. Because we've got to make sure that we don't look at, at uh, you know, we, I claim this promise for myself, and therefore, COVID, you have no power over me. Okay, people do right. that. And, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, and that's wrong. We say, Lord, if it's your will that I be sick and die, then so be it. But Lord, also, if it's your will that I not be sick and die, so be it. May I serve you either way. This is an act of faith. You know, George Mueller was, he called him the Orphan King, and he was an extremely dedicated man of prayer. Extremely dedicated. He's worth reading and studying. He died in the 1800s, late 1800s, and just a magnificent, godly man of prayer. Did magnificent things. And so he and his wife, their daughter, was dying from some sickness, and nothing the doctors did would save her. Nothing. And so she was dying, he said. He wrote, he was dying. And there was no hope. So they they prayed. And they said, Lord, if it's your will to take her, then you receive all the glory. We trust in you. We praise your name. We know that, you know, for a while you let us, us have her. We thank you. But if you hear us, Lord, our will, our desire is that she stay with us, that you be merciful. And so this is the kind of prayer that he prayed. And she recovered. Was it because of that prayer? I can't say yes, no. But that's the attitude we're to have in our prayers and not demand of God and make stupid claims. I mean, the word you use, I'm thinking of Kenneth Copeland and Joyce Meyer and the Father Confession right. Heretics. That's what I'm thinking of. It makes me mad. Do I yeah, claim yeah. I'm, I'm not maybe? into that yeah. at all. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, you're just level headed. But we can say, Lord, you know, you deliver us from the deadly pestilence. And we could add, and even if you don't, Lord, I will praise you. Just like it says in Job thirteen fifteen, Though he slay me, I'll hope in him. Who's the he who does the slaying? God. Wow. So, that's why I would never be a successful pastor. I, I teach the whole of Scripture. <laughs> I'm not going to teach you what you want to hear. So. Right, but but I love that. Even if he doesn't, we we present our request, and if he even if we do, he doesn't, then we trust and praise him that uh, his will be done. That's right, and then we ask. You know, like I uh, in Isaiah forty one ten, it says, "So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God." I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. So we can claim his strength through whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, we always do that. We always want to depend on God. You know, a real-life situation, my wife and I had a son who uh, we knew before he was born. He probably would die in our arms. He had a holoprosencephaly, a very rare thing. And um, we constantly prayed for his healing and his deliverance. And, well, he was born, and he passed away shortly after there. 
and he died in our arms and so I I can say that God delivered him God healed him by delivering him into his own hands that's mm -hmm. a legitimate way of looking at it it hurt us greatly but we never complained to God never complain what do you, you know why this why that we never, why us why this we don't do that we don't do that with the Lord we say Lord why'd you choose me because I'm nothing you know maybe that amen yeah <laughs> that's right and so we look to now, him didn't, we trust him Go ahead. didn't David complain start in the Psalms complaining he yeah there's this psalm yeah it says why did the wicked prosper for example right uh, uh -huh. and uh the thing about the psalms that i really like is they're real they're songs of desperation of imprecation with wishing harm on someone else you know get the enemies you know may they be hoisted by their own petard that kind of thing uh, lord deliver my son but you know, don't me. You know, if I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear. You know, it's all kinds of stuff of human life, and it's all there. There are imprecatory psalms that's wishing harm upon people. God, get them. Like Psalm eighty-two, for example, is an imprecatory psalm. Verse seven <laughs> it says, "Nevertheless, you will die like men." You know, and it, it's a judgment against the wicked judges. So. There's so much found in the Psalms, and they're, they're songs. So we have to remember they're songs that were sung, and that's what they were. Does it mean we can't trust them? Of course, no, we, we trust them. But it means take them as what they are, songs that were sung. Now, what do we take out of them? Well, we take the truth out of them. Okay? Yeah. yeah, that's all I want is just the truth. That's right. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, uh, let you know, let you go so another caller has a chance. Thank you okay. so much. Well, you're welcome so much. <laughs> God bless, Catherine. All God right. bless. Bye. Okay. Well, we don't have any other callers waiting, but you know, for some reason, I'm on Psalm 42. Uh, I'm going to read 9, 10, and 11 in, in that psalm. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Can we claim that for ourselves? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the health of my countenance and my God. Even in despair, He's praising God. This is one of the things about Psalms. I love the Psalms for that. They're real issues, real life. And the psalmist would write and sing as worship these things before God, before the king. And they were inscripturated. And you can see in that time and in that place, there's many difficulties for them to endure. And yet, hope in God. For I shall yet praise him in the midst of all the difficulties. We need to claim those for ourselves as well. The help of my countenance and my God, he uplifts us and causes us to smile as we trust in him. This is the idea that's also there in the Psalms, but it's through the trials and tribulations. And those are often the best times of life, not going through them, 
but having gone through them. For we've grown the most and learned how to be humble more than other ways. All right, we are out of time. May the Lord bless you by his grace. We'll be back on here tomorrow, and we'll talk to you then. God bless everybody. Have a great evening. Another program powered by the Truth Network.